opening the archives of Queen Elizabeth II, um, a speech was found which was never held. In 1983, um, some uh, probably frightful sp speechwriters wrote a speech or drafted a speech for the Queen about the atomic or the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe and that she was about how she should address that in, in that sort of event. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s, uh, many would remember the feeling of fear of a nuclear catastrophe, either with the sort of the, the Soviets bombing the NATO or NATO bombing the Soviet or whatever. Uh, but if we fast forward 40 years to up to today, uh, there's sort of a renaissance for apocalyptic fear and apocalyptic communication. And perhaps someone would say that the fear of the nuclear or the atomic bomb is perhaps even more, how do you put it? Um, present yep. in some sense. It's imminent. Yeah. It's imminent today. So um, uh, perhaps before we start all this, mm -hmm. I'm Borden Orem uh, and you are? You are Haga. Yeah, and we just uh, published this book on, uh, well, that's the way, the three fears every leader has to know on words to use in a crisis. So this will be a short conversation on the apocalyptic. And uh, yeah, so I think, uh, Bord, this is, uh, this is a very good place to start. I think we, we grew up in an era of, of apocalyptic anxiety um we were both 10 years at the time when exactly. the speech should be held yeah. um if uh, a, a nuclear threat ac actually was um sort of speak um um actualized or yeah. or uh, put into effect uh, and nowadays it seems even more imminent and, and threatening this um, and, and the probability is perhaps higher than, than those days. But I, I, I just wanted to, to just have, uh, place the apocalyptic threat on a level that is um, on a very basic threat or fear level. And we have, because we have written a book about the three fears Yes. And this is one of them, and, and perhaps the most profound. Yeah, at least because the apocalyptic fear is the fear that the world will cease to exist, at least the way we know it. So it's, it's the sort of fear that threatens our whole existence. Yeah. Like we could sometimes, the climate crisis, or people communicating about the climate crisis would say that if we don't act now, it might be too late. Yeah. And the meaning, and saying that is not just that the, the welfare state will cease to exist, but it, it's that life in itself or the conditions for life will be changed in such a way that we can't really live here. So life as we know it is, is on a, its most profound uh, at threat in, in this yeah, And that's the first fear. fear, the apocalyptic fear. Yeah. And then the second one would then be the political fear, which affects our social order. So if you live in a particular country, it's the fear that if you're invaded by another nation, your nation will cease to exist or the, the you will of, enter another uh, yeah political order yeah so that's the fear obviously that ukrainians are facing today yeah yeah and then you have uh, what we have called private fear 
which on one level would uh, would have to do with uh, the fear of losing your job or perhaps uh, um, that your health would deteriorate or that you would in the ultimate case die in some sense but that's that, that's your private thing but it could also be an element of shame which is the sort of metaphorical use of the, the the private fear that how can i live with myself if i act in this manner or if we act in this manner mm. so interestingly before we move to the atomic uh, uh, greta thunberg's appeal to how dare you uh, in 2019 is sort of hitting both those kinds of fear it's both the apocalyptic the fear that the world will cease to exist but it's also to the adult saying that how dare you how can you live with this it's also in private appeal to this private fear but uh, what happens when, particularly in Europe, when we've had peace, at least in some sense, for 80 years? Uh, there, ha there has been some, there have been some wars that have been affecting some areas really heavily. But up until now, we've had peace on the continent for a long time. And it seems to me that there's something theoretic for some people, at least, about the yeah. uh, nuclear fear. It's 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 really hard to grasp, isn't it? It is, and I think uh, so. For the for the uh, speech that that you refer to, the um, speech not held yeah. uh, by Thatcher, or was it the Queen? Actually, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. So I sus suspect it was written by someone in Thatcher's government, probably, yeah. uh, and um, I. I think uh, the the Cold War, as it was, yeah. or as it were, uh, at that time, it was more or less um, a state of sort of stasis, as as the Greek says. Yeah. It was sort of put on hold. You know, no, 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 no warm war, no, no, no actual fighting. And I think that is the background of our sort of distance feeling to to this to this very war uh, thing uh, that we have experienced a, a, a cool down in in uh, in war itself yeah. nevertheless it was felt yeah. as a very real threat uh, we had a fear i i remember of, of and perhaps of also because the images of uh, nagasaki and hiroshima were so uh, close in some sense i mean uh, the they were vivid, living images, and and you could easily imagine how what would happen if uh, I mean there are numerous uh, sort of uh, movies made about what would happen to the east coast of the U.S. if uh, a nuclear missile would hit during the Cold War. Yes, yeah. and um, many of the addresses I remember from Ronald Reagan, for example, yeah. had this. Um, imagery as a horizon or a background of his yeah. of his uh, speeches but i think um when it's addressed or, or when when it's felt this fear um good leaders they will try to to uh, address it and to describe um the reality in which people live with this fear so so what you're saying is that if you're a political leader or even a leader of a business and the landscape, so to say, is in some sense apocalyptic or the terrain has some sort of apocalyptic flavor to it, it's key to the ability to name 
that fear and adequately address how one should respond to it is what leadership is is about so because we often heard that leaders should not play on fear or we should uh, not appeal to fear because it's uh, manipulative or mm -hmm. uh, but i guess what we're saying in this book is that there's no way around fear fear is inevitable there is uh, so the case for avoiding fear is to some extent true if if the concept of fear is very narrowly uh, described as a reference to you know if you don't do this i will sort of uh, yeah. do, do something harmful to you but i think um let's take the the climate fear that is sort of an, an apocalyptic fear as well but on a on a different level and with a with a different kind of time frame to attach to it because it's um more it's a problem that we are um uh, we're facing it now but it might the consequences will be perhaps next summer will be even warmer but it won't be well it might be unbearable for some but not for all yes so, so that's the difference if an, a nuclear bomb hits it's in a blink of an eye and then it's over for many or for most of us yeah so so, so in that we, sense, have, we have might we talk about two different kinds of apocalyptic fears in perhaps, some sense? Perhaps, perhaps, yes. I, I, and um, and the the threat of um, of a climate that is um, becoming warmer is not so. It's not so sure what what the actual consequences are. Whereas for for a nuclear bomb, if it hits a city, the the damage would be devastating and, and we know that mm. um but and, and and now we have we are faced with a, a real war in europe mm. it's it's uh, a warm war it's a warm war and it's an ongoing war and it, the outcome is 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 not certain and one of the key players here and the, the actual aggressor russia has uh, loads and loads of nuclear bombs. But there's, there's an interesting paradox here, and that is that on one hand, uh, the nuclear or the atomic bombs, uh, they are what we fear. So they, they've risen in the, if, if we think about a hierarchy of fears, where at some point we fear the pandemic mm -hmm. at the most, at another point it's suddenly the climate crisis, and now it might be an actual war or the uh, an atomic bomb because uh, the the system in russia seems to be so unstable but at the same time since this is an energy crisis ironically the nuclear or the atomic plays also a key role as a sort of solution to the mm -hmm. crisis so that that's the very sort of uh, paradoxical almost ironical part here so uh, in 2011 uh, the, because of the Fukushima, as a direct response to the Fukushima uh, uh, incident or uh, disaster in Yop, uh, Japan, the German Bundestag and uh, with Merkel at the very front, they declared a moratorium on uh, so, so nuclear plants. Whereas this is so now the moratorium is uh, stopped or paused because we sense that. <laughs> There's a downside here that we didn't calculate. So depending on Russian ga gas is perhaps even more uh, challenging. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And I think, uh, so what you are uh, referring to, namely the closing down of, of the nuclear electrical plants in, in Germany, was uh, the response to the threat of a, of a nuclear uh, meltdown. Um, and out of fear, Merkel and, and the German politicians just, just closed down the, the, the shop uh, that had produced uh, electricity. And, and had secured them with sort of homemade electricity, one must say. Yeah. Because if we look at, if we, if we just for a little while rewind back to 19, the end of the 1970s, the big discussion in the US was what uh, President Jimmy Carter addressed in his speech on the crisis of confidence, where the goal was to become independent. Yeah. Self-sufficient self -sufficient mm. on energy, because they saw that if we depend on the Middle East producers of gas and oil, we are much more volatile mm. uh, and fragile. And interestingly, I don't think there's much attention being paid to this in Norwegian context in particular. Uh, Obama said with pride at the end of his period, it was me people saying that how he increased the production of gas and oil within the US mm. uh, and where they pass this threshold of being self-sufficient. Yes, and it's in a sense um, that the, um, the very um, acknowledgement of modern society's dependence on energy that has been, become also a, a security uh, question. And it has always been, but Angela Merkel and the German politicians and also many other in, in, the, in, in Europe, they, they trusted uh, the Russians to be stable deliverers of, of uh, cheap gas. And um, it failed. And isn't it also because we, in, a, in liberal democracies built on capitalism of some sort, we believe that if you do trade with people, over time, they will befriend you. And... Uh, and if that is not the case, we're sort of surprised. Yeah. Yes, that, and, and, and I think uh, uh, that was the, the idea of uh, Merkel, um, that change will come about through trade. And, um, and she also uh, deliberately rejected LNG uh, plants or, or uh, receiving capabilities of of gas from from ships uh, in order to to persuade the russians that we are now building our lines towards russia not not uh, uh, doing any backup so, 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 so we, was, we want to be inseminated to use a very uh, bold metaphor <laughs> only by one party here. Yeah. <laughs> yes and, and 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 it was a, a an attempt of building trust exactly so by saying that we we put all our eggs in one basket in some sense. Yeah. But if we look at this from a business perspective uh, for a while, let's say you're, uh, you're in Norway and have this idea of using thorium as a, a nuclear source. What sort of arguments could you use if you say, I'm, I want to be part of the new green economy uh, and uh, what we see now with the uh, attack on the Nord Stream uh, 1 and 2, shows us how volatile and insecure the, uh, the provision of, of gas is. 
So what sort of arguments could a business leader do give to both persuade uh, politicians, but also perhaps um, a people? Because there's a sort of, there's a popular element to this as well. Yeah, so I think um, the, the, the very problem, our, our fear is sort of doubled in this respect because we fear uh, the, the consequences of our production of energy, but we fear even more the lack of it. The lack of it. Yeah. And I think the, the, um, um, the normal um, way to talk about it nowadays is to dif differentiate that we need in the energy mix, we need many su uh, um, suppliers and we need many sources of energy. And, um, but at the end, we need to rely on them. So I think the, the case for being um, able to, to draft um, a map of secure energy supplies, that is a, 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 very, a very strong argument in today's debate, I, 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 I suppose. So in one sense, if you were a business leader and you would set out a plan for why this development of thorium would be the most secure thing. Of course, the, this, there's an element here that what one in rhetoric would call the logos part, so sort of uh, convincing with the sort of uh, science shows that this mm -hmm. and that with thorium, but there's also a, a pathos element that uh, although the logos structure would be very convincing, people would still remember the image of the Hiroshima bomb or, or some things that would even the not to mention the Chernobyl disaster. So, so you sort of, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's really interesting that you bring up, um, that problem of, of the logos argument, you know, Aristotle distinguishes between the entimem, the uh, proceeding from so certain, uh, presupposed axiom, some, some presupposed matter of fact. I mean, the audiences would just say, this is, this yeah. is self-evident. Yeah. And then you just proceed from that and you, you reach some conclusions. But he also said that the speaker can also use uh, a more inductive method, just pointing to examples mm. and then draw conclusions from that. Mm. And I think what Angela Merkel did in 2011, when she pointed to the example of Japan, she said, look what's happening, what's happening there. Mm. This can happen here as well. We have to stop this. Yeah. And by doing that, she was also inferring to the, to the very story of modernity, because we have built our, our wealth, our very um, existence as sort of, sort of modern uh, human beings mm. on exploiting nature. And she was also do, dealing with this problem of how should we be a part of nature when we are actually exploiting nature. Mm. And I think that was a, a, an attempt to strike balance. We have to move from nuclear power to solar and wind power. So nuclear power was then put in the basket of 
nature exploitation. So, so then we're exploiting. Yeah. Whereas some would argue again, then, well, that's the cleanest energy we have. And, and that is what is so interesting now, because the same people who argued that this is um, the most problematic energy source, they are now saying, but this is the cleanest. Yeah. So we can see that the appeal to, to um, what we fear might be something that we trust in the next corner, but th there has not been very uh, radical changes in the, in the industry in 12, 11 years. So in some sense, it's our perception that changes. Exactly. And that is what makes so rhetoric so, so dynamic and vibrant. Mm. Because you cannot have secure um, references. They might change with the audience. It might even happen overnight in some sense. Yeah, in some sense. And, and that happened uh, with the supply of, of gas to, to Europe. So let's talk a bit about this, because uh, I think when we grew up in the 80s, um, we, at least some, feared. Uh, that's what Stings sang about in the song The Russians. So you would fear uh, that foreign power, um, but at the same time, the image was that they were, they might be hardliners, but they were not nutcases, or mm -hmm. they were not lunatics, or yeah. uh, moving in every direction. So what seems to be the new case now is that uh, you once uh, thought you could trust the Russians, or Russian authorities, but now, at least from a Western perspective, how can we trust Putin and his allies? Or even more, if we move this to North Korea, uh, how can we trust the Kims? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of been the logic of making this family of nuclear owners very small, is that if you divide it, then at one point it will be in the hands of someone who's just simply not reliable. Mm -hmm. So the, in order to, to um, make use of rhetoric in this situation of fear, you have to sort of imagine some kind of rationality on the other side. Mm -hmm. If it's completely irrational, then I think the, the case is lost. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, but language and the, the dialectics, that is the, the talking, the, 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 the way of speaking addresses rationality to the listeners, um, I, I, I think in any case. Mm. So if you think it's possible to describe fear or address fear, then you sort of, uh, you're, you're, um, you're in, in a sense uh, making it rational. Mm. And I think that is at the heart of the, the optimism that is um, apparent in, in our book mm. on treating apocalyptic fear, that it's possible to talk about it. I think it's very important to, to address it, it just in order to make it rational in a sense. And <clears throat> for example, by, by um, um, constantly uh, uh, supervising the NATO 
countries use of of not being involved in directly in the war is also to secure that two parts with atomic weapons are not in directly engaged into another mm-hmm. and to me it seems that's some some in some sense to address fear with a, a certain rationality in some sense yeah um, another thing in the 80s uh, was particularly towards the latter part of the 80s were all these rather optimistic songs about how we could all over the world uh, join hands and uh, make world peace and i remember for instance for the seoul olympics uh, you had this anthem of hand in hand we stand all across the land and we can make this world a better place in which to live sort of that uh, we are the world uh, anthem just growing growing but in political theory there's always the concept of foe and friend uh, there's always uh, uh, even more so in rhetoric who's your adversary uh, and how does that play out in when it comes to apocalyptic fear today yeah so the the friend foe um understanding for example in the in the rather um scary theory of carl schmidt for example is that to say that uh your your political um unity is a, a, a kind of friendship that distinguishes itself from another political unity and you will always regard your internal um enemies within the the political unity for example people from another party or or from a completely different uh political understanding as on one level friends because yeah. if if you are attacked then you will defend this political order um and i think um that is uh, very important to to acknowledge and to understand but there is a, a higher order and that is the, the 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 apocalyptic because if if your defense of the political order involves actually destroying the the very possibility of existence there the, won't be any foes anymore the, the, and there won't, won't be either friends no or foes. no yeah. foes yeah exactly so you, you would just destroy yourself and that was the logic i think of the uh the scaling down in the late 80s so yeah. i remember vividly sort of uh, gorbachev and reagan meeting on iceland for instance for some yeah. of the peace talks and that, then was this feeling that if we continue to upscale this it leads to self-destruction on both sides yep yeah. we seem we seem a bit further from that logic now uh, because uh, perhaps because the symmetry has changed i don't know yeah and and uh, and the if you look back on that um situation where we were v- worried of a nuclear threat actually it was the longest period in history where there were more or less peace mm. at least warm there was an absence of a warm war mm. so the cold war was actually a sort of guaranteeing peace for a very long period of time um it it is a on a very high cost of course 
um, and it creates anxiety. But the, the paradox is that this extreme weapon of, of mass destruction has actually um, sort of upped the game onto a, to a level that is not possible to execute anything because it would just imply self-destruction. In the long term, however, what you're suggesting is, is, of course, that other smaller states will get hold of this terrible weapon. And, um, and then fear is of a different order. Yeah, and then fear is all around, in some sense, to, uh, to rewrite <laughs> yes. re a song. Uh, in some way, I think we find this to be an optimistic book, yeah. uh, even though it's about fear. Why is that? I think I think it has to do what we have just said now. I think first of all, fear belongs to the human experience. People, so it's part of our reality. We, in some some sense, it's inescap inescapable. Yeah. yeah. So the those who who say um, you should not appeal to fear, they have a they have a in some sense some sense a good case because. Appealing to fear could, in some situations, mean that you you are suggesting um, uh, retaliation or yeah. revenge or or harmful acts. On the other hand, fear is a part of human existence. We have always feared something, mm. and I think it is politically irresponsible not to fear, for example, climate change. And it's, isn't it all about a part of the vocation of being a politician or the vocation of even being a business leader is to be able to interpret where are we now and to say that this situation, what sort of situation is this? What does it call for? And that um, interpreting the hierarchy or the hierarchy of fears is part of saying that well, in the 90s, we feared this, but now we need to fear this. And that's why we need to do this. Yes, because no, nobody would uh, today accuse uh, Churchill of, of playing the, the fear card. No, uh, in, in 1940. In 1940, when he was faced with Hitler. Yeah. And, and, and then just praise Chamberlain for, for, for proclaiming peace in our time. And I, I think it's... Um, Isn't the point also that we didn't know at that time, we, no one really knew that Churchill was right. But, but nobody knows. Yeah. So, so this is the, this is the um, sort of challenge to, to address. I mean, in the 80s, when they started to understand that there was something going on with the climate, yeah. the people who addressed it as, a, as an imminent uh, threat, they were making a bold move because it, it was not uh, self-evident that our, our climate was changing in, in, in the sense that they, they, they um, described it. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a situation you have to in interpret the sign of the times, so to speak, in order to, to, to interpret it correctly. We move towards an end here now, but uh, I was wondering, um, is there a sort of 
ethical or perhaps virtuous response to fear? Or may we cultivate our appeal to fear in ways that are more ethical than others? So typically, uh, or traditionally, one would say that the, the virtuous response to fear would be to be courageous. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, courage as a virtue is often described as a rather grey virtue. I mean, even soldiers of an invading army can in some sense be courageous, but for what some would think to be the wrong purpose. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, the, in the old Roman army, the most effective military um, culture, I think, that we've seen there was a code of conduct that when you, if you were too brave, if you broke out of the line mm. meeting the enemy, then uh, you would be punished because you, you, you sort of um, opened up to a, to a much graver danger. Um, and, but, but being coward was, was also not very helpful. But it's not... It's not um, if you if you're meeting a very strong enemy on on a plain field to to regroup uh, behind the lines would perhaps be better than just stay standing be the last man standing always. So I think to to market this this virtue as a grey one mm -hmm. is a very pertinent uh, thing and. Um, and to do what is necessary involves a description of reality that is, in some sense, true. So perhaps we end on that note saying that there's always fear. Uh, what is not always that clear is how we interpret that or should interpret that fear. Uh, and, and then the political or challenge for the leader is how do we appeal to not just the one fear, but the fears mm -hmm. that shape our reality. Yeah. And uh, well, let's leave it with that. Uh, that's what we, the sort of constructive advice in the book of the three fears every leader has to know and how to craft words to use in a crisis.